This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I am your host, Scott Greenberg. And today, I have consulting winemaker Aaron Pott as a guest on the podcast. Aaron's father was a minister and a great fan of Riesling. He moved the family around a bit and going from Berkeley to Eugene and Oxford, but landed in all places, Davis, California. Now, Aaron stayed through college getting a degree in enology. In 1990, after graduation, he took a position at Newton Vineyards in Napa Valley, and he eagerly and dutifully learned from the larger-than-life characters in Napa Valley, like John Kongsgaard, wow, that's pretty big, and French consulting winemaker Michel Roland. Now, Michel found Aaron a position as winemaker for Chateau Tropelon Mondat, a premier Grand Cru Classé in Bordeaux. He spent five years as director at Chateau La Tour Figiac, which I love, simultaneously earning a master's degree in viticultural from, now get this, from the University de Bourgogne in Dijon. I wish my French was better. Pot returned to the United States in 98, becoming Behringer Wine Estate's head winemaker in charge of international brands, making wine in France, Italy, and Chile. Now, during his tour abroad, Aaron was very fortunate to meet his wife, Claire, at a party in London. In 2001, Aaron took over as winemaker for St. Clement, and in 2004, he became winemaker and general manager at Quintessa Estate. In 2007, Pot teamed up with his wife, Claire, to create Pot Wine. That same year, he accepted a consulting winemaker role at Blackbird Vineyards. Aaron now lives with his wife, Claire, and their two children at their vineyard on Mount Veter in Napa Valley. And Aaron, welcome to the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Scott. A pleasure for me, too. Wow. So, broken wing and all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Aaron and I have been trying to meet up here for quite some time, and uh, we finally got on a, settled on a date. And of course, uh, literally just a day or two before we were scheduled to have this podcast, Aaron, uh, in, in a fit of youth, was uh, skateboarding, as I believe, and uh, broke your wrist. Yes. Yeah. You should, you should stick to winemaking. <laughs> <laughs> so, Aaron, I want, I want to start off with a story that, that I've heard. When you were about 10 years old, you were in a Paris restaurant at a cafe, and uh, the waiter brought you a glass of wine instead of milk that, that you had ordered. Uh, and he, he looked down at you, and he sneered, and he said, yeah, milk is for babies, <laughs> Now, is, that, is that a true story? It is a true story, yeah. My first night ever in Paris. And uh, the waiter gave me what I think was now a Beaujolais village, Beaujolais of some sort. But I remember tasting it and thinking it was terrible. But realizing that, at, uh, and I was nine years old at the time, I realized that um, this is the thing that's going to make me an adult. So every nine-year-old kid wants to be an adult. And uh, I felt that that was my ticket to adulthood. Is that what drew you to wine at such a young age, that, that theoretical ticket? That really, that really was the start of it. Uh, my father, who worshipped uh, Riesling, he did his postdoctorate uh, in Heidelberg and had a professor that really loved uh, Riesling and... Uh, my father had a bit of a sweet tooth as well. So he, uh, 
he had a lot of a lot of Rieslings around when I was growing up, and I would always taste them and uh, enjoyed tasting them. But when when that moment happened in Paris, and subsequently we visited a lot of vineyards, and I realized that there were kind of three things that every one of these vineyards had that I wanted to have in my life. They all worked outside. Uh, they all had dogs that worked with them. And, you know, a nine-year-old boy wants to be with a dog. And then they all lived in these amazing 15th century chateaux. And I thought that would be great. <laughs> That's the life for me. And no. uh, that really made me focus on uh, learning about wine at a young age. And I was that annoying kid at my parents' parties that would uh, correct all the, all the um, uh, crazy pronouncements about wine that my parents' friends would make. And uh, it was, you know, it was the era of James Bond and James Bond... Uh, always got the girl uh, because he knew something about wine, you know, 64 Dom Perignon and that sort of thing. And uh, so everybody wanted to know a little bit about wine and uh, nobody knew a whole lot about wine. And I had a lot of time to research a lot of stuff about wine. So I, I managed to learn a lot as a kid. Just out of curiosity, is that uh, how you met Claire? You knew a lot about wine? No, she would have been entirely unimpressed by my wine knowledge. <laughs> Even though you were a, kind of a big, well, you are a big deal, but I mean, you were a big deal when you met her. Oh, I don't know about that. A big deal in my own mind, maybe. <laughs> well, I'm just <laughs> a big deal according to your bio. I'm impressed. So, and speaking of your bio, you've had some pretty cool mentors. I, I mentioned Michel Roland early on, and of course, John Kongsgaard. Just kind of curious, you know, how have they helped you through your wine career and what, um, uh, what, have, what influence have they played over the years? I really, I mean, the, the world of the mentor for me has been, has been very rewarding. I, I've always in my life uh, relied on mentors to, uh, to get knowledge. And I, I'm one of those people that really learns watching and learns firsthand and it was so great to be able to access people and i really think um john kongsgaard was one of my early great mentors and still is a huge influence on my winemaking today but uh john hired me to uh to be his assistant uh because he was forced to by the owners of newton vineyard the newtons who uh decided that they wanted me to, to work there. And uh, John wasn't excited about it at all. <laughs> and uh, asked, to, uh, asked to see me, uh, uh, to talk to me before I started work. This was in 1990. And uh, luckily I was uh, listening to a cassette tape of uh, Mahler's Fifth Symphony uh, going up to the vineyards. And I had this, uh, the smaller Swiss symphony blasting out of my car when I drove up and this tall figure comes out of the, the cellar and I asked this person, do you know where John Kongsgaard's office is? Music blaring in the background. Uh, and John uh, said to me, you're Aaron Pop. And I said, yes. And he said, good, I don't need to talk to you anymore. You're hired. 
that's Mahler's Fifth Symphony. <laughs> wow. And uh, it was through classical music that uh, I got to access John. And then we had uh, a phenomenal number of great consulting winemakers, including Michel Roland, you said, but also Dominique Lafont and, and many others at the time. And it was, uh, John gave me unfettered access to these people. And I, I, my memories of uh, Newton Vineyard uh, have, all have to do with being in the uh, jump seats of John's uh, Ford Ranger pickup. Uh, with the, the different multicolored doors where he had uh, destroyed the doors from various uh, late evenings drinking somewhere. And uh, I would be in the back seat taking notes and the consulting winemaker would be in the front passenger seat and John would be driving around the vineyard. And I still have a lot of those notes today that I, I took at that time. And um I always latched on to the, these mentorships uh, with Michel when Michel took me to France and, uh, and essentially recommended me for the job at, at Trollamondeau. He uh, gave me an open door office uh, key, essentially, to go in and talk to him anytime. And I took full advantage of that. And uh, and also gathered a lot of other uh, people at the time. I have to mention uh, Jean-Louis Mondreau, uh, who worked for Beringer for 16 years, uh, but was the winemaker at Chateau de Tour for 13 years, who, was a, uh, who is a great mentor and still, you know, still a great mentor to me. So I, I'm really, through those people, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say. And it's always helped me in my career. So I mentioned that you went to Bordeaux and then you actually ended up with a master's degree from the University de Bourgogne in Dijon. Uh, and you, your winemaking career in Bordeaux is pretty remarkable. I'm just kind of curious, what are the differences in winemaking in Bordeaux and the winemaking in Napa Valley? Well, I mean, I think that in my era in Bordeaux, uh, the person that was making the wine was also running the vineyard. So they were uh, small-ish estates. Uh, it's much bigger now, Trollamando, uh, but at the time it was 35 hectares in size, so about 75 acres. And uh, it, it was one contiguous estate. And as the winemaker, I was in charge of the vineyards and I was in charge of, uh, of the winemaking, which um, in my mind was way beyond uh, my, my skills uh, at that time. And, uh, you know, I kept coming into Michel's office and saying, you know, Michel, I don't know that I can do this. And he said, you know, of course you can do this. Of course you can do this. And uh, eventually you fake it till you make it. And that's uh, what happened. But I think that that's one of the biggest differences is that you have these single estates where the estate itself controls the vineyards uh, and controls all the winemaking. Uh, here in California, most wineries don't own their own vineyards. They're buying grapes from other vineyards or leasing land uh, to produce their wines. And, uh, and most of the time it's 
it's, there's a separation between the person that makes the wine and the person that grows the grapes. And that's, that for me has never worked very well. And I think uh, also one of the biggest and most glaring differences uh, is a difference in ripeness in, in Bordeaux, at least in the time that I was there, of the seven vintages of wines that I made, none of those wines did we pick grapes at uh, the desired ripeness that we wanted to. We were always interrupted by weather and forced into picking grapes um, before, before that weather came in and, and took over uh, and created problems for the grapes. And in, in California, it's uh, kind of the opposite thing that uh, we can have too much heat during that period between veraison and harvest uh, when the grapes change color and soften uh, that creates a situation where the grapes uh, desiccate, they dry out, they stop ripening and you're picking underripe grapes but at much higher sugar levels. So you get higher alcohols and you're dealing with underripe tannins. But it's kind of a similar situation where you, you get rain in Bordeaux, the grapes don't ripen to the expected level that you want to. So you add sugar into, the, into those uh, fermentations in order to get an acceptable amount of alcohol to create the balance in the wine. And here in California, the grapes dehydrate, uh, they lose water, uh, and they stop ripening. So you have underripe tannins as well, but you have such high sugars that you're adding water in order to get, in order to get the balance that you want in the wines. It's a, a very unusual difference. Yeah, the other difference I would say is that maybe in California, we take it for granted that we get so many great vintages back to back. Uh, at least in the good old days before, you know, the climate change started heating up the vineyards a little bit. Uh, but in Bordeaux, it, at least from my experience, great vintages are really celebrated because they don't come back to back. I won't say they're few and far between because, you know, we've, we've been blessed with some really great vintages uh, over the last couple decades, but they're not every year. So I think there's really also a difference to be when we, we have an opportunity to really celebrate um, great vintages in, in, again, in my experience in Bordeaux. That's true. Um, I mean, in, in the decade, you know, you look at Napa uh, between 2010 and 2020 and the number of phenomenal vintages in there is, is amazing. Yep. Uh, and I remember asking, um, asking Michel Roland, why are the premier Grand Cru wines of the Medoc, why are they so great? You know, we had just tasted several wines and we had had some super second wines that were fabulous. And uh, one of the things he said really surprised me. He said that, you know, they don't make the best wine every year, but one in 10 vintages, they will make a wine that's so much better than the other wines that it's, uh, that it's remarkable. So fast forward now, you're, you're done in Bordeaux, you're back in the United States. And somehow, and, and I'm very curious about this, you end up as the consulting winemaker with Blackbird about, what, 14 years ago? What drew you to that project? 
Well, I think it was a it was a perfect fit for me. At the time, Blackbird was owned by Michael Polensky, who was a young guy, and he was doing something that was very countercultural. He was focusing on uh, this really uh, obscure, hated grape, Merlot. And uh, it doesn't seem so odd now, but this was in the wake of uh, Sideways. Merlot had gone... Uh, had gone, its value had gone down the toilets. And uh, we, we were focusing on something that I really loved. I mean, I love Merlot, I love Cabernet Franc, I love those right bank varieties. And it seemed just the ideal fit for me to work with a, a group that was focusing on those grapes. And where's Blackbird located in California? So Black, Blackbird's in Napa Valley. The vineyard is in Oak Knoll in Napa Valley. We also have oh, sure. a yeah. vineyard called the Bird's Nest that's uh, up above Lake Hennessy. That's uh, the current owners, uh, John and Julia Hinshaw, own. And then the, the winery itself is uh, in a very unromantic warehouse building uh, located in southern Napa. Where do you see the winemaking, and, and again, specifically Blackbird, heading in the next few years, are they still solely focused on Merlot and, and Cab Franc? Or are they expanding into Cabernet Sauvignon and other varietals? So I, I think Blackbird was in a real period of expansion uh, in the last several years. And uh, then John and Julia Hinshaw took over the project and uh, really wanted to put on the brakes and get back to uh, what was the original idea behind Blackbird, which was to focus on, on Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and the principal wines that we had worked on, uh, Illustration being the Merlot vehicle, Paramour being the Cabernet Franc vehicle, and Contrarian being the Cabernet Sauvignon vehicle, and also the second wine, Arise. So they, they really wanted to look at those wines and uh, not be involved in uh, producing all of the wines that Blackbird had started producing uh, in the Michael Polensky era. So Aaron, I read something about you that uh, I found very intriguing. It's a, I believe this is a, a quote attributed to you. I make wine because I need the intellectual challenge and the satisfaction of crafting something beautiful for those that will appreciate it. Is, is that the satisfaction you're getting out of Blackbird? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, I, I, love, I love seeing the transformation throughout the year. It's like watching paint dry because it's so, it's so slow, but you have this 220 day growing season and then you finally harvest this fruit and uh, interpreting what the vineyard is saying to you and uh, trying to create something that's, uh, that's beautiful and shows where it's from is one of the most intellectually thrilling and challenging things I've ever experienced. I, I still am so passionate about it. I love it. Well, I'm gonna continue the quote. The vine is the ultimate teacher, no matter how long you've been at it. Vines respond to the slightest interaction, a leaf removal here, a shoot positioning there. In every case, they show you, often with humor, how wrong or right you were. I love that. 
absolutely love that. It feels like you almost kind of have a Zen for winemaking. I've often felt that way. I mean, I, I definitely have a very close connection to, to the vineyards and, uh, and to the lands. And, and I like to treat uh, each vine as its own individual uh, living elements. And I, I think there's uh, the more you get connected, the more you get your boots on the ground in those vineyards, the better your wine's going to be. And I, I think it's that that connection, that commitment to growing, that commitment to growing organically, uh, that's a really important part of, uh, of of making wine. And speaking of staying connected and, and boots on the ground, do you still have any connections in France? Oh yes, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't do any work in France. I don't want to do any, any consulting work outside of Napa Valley uh, because it's, it's too much trouble to get out. And I, I'm too focused on my projects here. But, uh, you know, I still have great friends over in, in, uh, in Bordeaux and uh, in Burgundy that I love to see. And speaking of your consulting projects, is there a particular style that you have, and and or how would you describe your style of winemaking? Well, I think it's a it's a style of purity and and authenticity. I think we're we're looking to uh, to the vineyard to tell us what it wants to produce, and not looking to create a style uh, of our own. So I w- I want to keep my style as far away from the vineyard as possible. And I, I know that's a, it's a common thing you hear from non-interventionalist winemakers, but uh, uh, it's really important, I think. I, I, a lot of California winemakers are using a lot of tools and techniques to make their wines better, to make them richer, to make them denser, to make them more tannic. Uh, to make them more soft. And uh, we're trying uh, everything we can to just uh, make wine with grapes and nothing else. And to make the, make the transition between uh, the vineyard and the bottle as seamless as possible. Well, I have to tell you, Aaron, now I'm thirsty. So we're coming up, uh, we're coming up to that part of the podcast where What's in your glass? <laughs> so what do you have for us today? What are we tasting? We're, we're tasting the 2016 uh, Blackbird um, red wines. So okay. 2016 uh, Paramore, 2016 Illustration, and 2016 Contrarian. What wine would you like to start with? So let's, let's start with the 2016 Illustration. Okay. And that's a, a blend that's principally uh, Merlot and uh, has a small amount of Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon uh, in it as well. What's, uh, what's the price point on that wine? That's $125. Okay. How many cases of that are you making? Uh, we generally make between 500 and 1,000 cases in any given vintage. And readily available? Is it direct to consumer? Am I finding it on a restaurant list? It's uh, direct to consumer. Uh, it's available in restaurants. I mean, we really focus on restaurants, but uh, with the pandemic, that's been uh, not such a, a great area to focus on. 
So Blackbird's really, uh, really a restaurant, uh, a restaurant wine, I think, more than anything else. But um, a lot of direct to consumer as well. What is it about the illustration that you find so intriguing? Uh, it's it's really the focus on the the Merlot is what I love. These are vineyards that are quite cool climate vineyards. We're working with. Uh, with two vineyards principally for the Merlot portion of this, uh, Hudson Vineyards uh, in Carneros. So right next to the the bay, very cold site. Uh, it's owned by Lee Hudson, um, great grower, um, actually worked at Domaine du Jacques. We talked about that a little earlier before we started. Oui, oui. But, <laughs> But uh, he uh, fell in love with uh, fell in love with Pinot Noir and uh, and Chardonnay and Burgundy and came back to California to plant grapes in Carneros and uh, realized that the area he had chosen was uh, more suited for other different varieties and uh, we did a huge planting specifically for Blackbird at the Hudson Vineyard Ranch. Uh, that was uh, mainly focused on Cabernet Franc and Merlot, but also included a small amount of Sauvignon Blanc and a small amount of Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, it's, uh, in most vintages, it's one of our most appealing Merlots, a beautiful cold climate Merlot, um, very aromatic. Uh, you get the kind of the classic uh, characters of Merlot, that uh, iris uh, aroma, and then the beautiful black cherry character. It's um, it's combined with a another vineyard uh, that we've been working with for about ten years now, uh, Stagecoach Vineyards, uh, that is uh, in the eastern hills of of Napa Valley, uh, and it's uh, on the between Pritchard Hill and Atlas Peak and those Eastern Hills. And it's this incredibly dense basaltic uh, rock. You, you recognize it because it's, uh, it's orange in color. It's been, it has such a high iron content that it rusts. And uh, you see the, this orange colored rock everywhere and red, this red dirt. And it's kind of the, the Eastern side of, uh, of Napa all the way down to uh, Oakville has this rock as its dominant characteristic. And it's, it's a magical place to grow, uh, grow a lot of grape varieties, but specifically Bordeaux varieties. And, um, you know, you see that same rock in, uh, in Dalla Valle and Oakville Ranch in the Bacchus Vineyard for Joseph Phelps and all the way down to Screaming Eagle. It's the exact same, uh, same rock strata. Wow. Um, that's a great Merlot site for us, a dominant uh, position on the valley at about 1400 feet. You're overlooking the whole, whole valley. Beautiful. That's up there a bit. Yeah, beautiful, cool climate Merlot. What's in your next class? So we have the Paramore in the, in the next class. And Paramore is really the Cabernet Franc focused wine. And again, a couple of the same vineyards there, Hudson Vineyards and Stagecoach Vineyard are the dominant sources of, of that Cabernet, Cabernet Franc. 
and the and the Merlot in there as well, and a little bit of Cabernet Sauvignon from a, a, a block in on uh, Spring Mountain, but uh, mainly that's uh, the stagecoach block uh, that's uh, known as M3. That's in the middle of the stagecoach vineyard. That's a great Cabernet Franc block, and you really, I mean, you can see the. You just see the aromatics of Cabernet Franc, that blueberry, the uh, tobacco and cedar characters that really are are the dominant aromas in Cab Franc. So, Aaron, I have a little bit of a confession. I am a Cabernet Franc freak. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I absolutely adore Cabernet Franc. Uh, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to see that there's more plantings now of Cabernet Franc uh, in, in Napa than I recall in recent uh, decades. It seems to be coming, uh, I won't say coming into vogue, but there certainly seems to be more plantings, which I'm thrilled about. Yeah, I mean, it's a very versatile uh, grape, but it is a very terroir-specific grape as well. I mean, there's so many different styles that you can get from Cabernet Franc. But I, I think it, it only works in about four different soils in, in Napa Valley uh, to make the best possible Cabernet Franc. Fortunately, my wife and I own one of those uh, sites. Fortunately. <laughs> Up on Mount Vitor that uh, we, we jokingly call Chateau Neuf du Pot. And, uh, <laughs> okay. I love and I, I make two, two different Cabernet Franc-based wines off of the property. One's a natural wine that's aged in amphora, and the other called Space and Time, which is a more traditional uh, Bordeaux-style Cabernet Franc. Although I always hesitate to say that because if you, if you think about uh, Cabernet Franc in Bordeaux, it's kind of a minor player. Uh, even in Saint-Emilion, where we, you know, we always think of Ozone and, uh, and Cheval Blanc being these, you know, Cabernet Franc dominant wines, there's uh, very few other wines that have a great deal of Cabernet Franc in them. So just out of curiosity, what is the um, label under which you're making those last two wines? It's uh, my own label, POTT, P-O-T-T. P-O-T-T. And again, are those direct to consumer? Where would people find those? 100% direct to consumer. Yeah, we make a tiny amount of wine. So, Very cool. And then back to the Paramore for just a sec. Um, again, I assume that that's a direct to consumer wine at this point. Yes. All right. And also available in restaurants. We have a, a lot of restaurant partners. Uh, Blackbird has been very good uh, in uh, partnering up with a, a lot of restaurants. Well, Aaron, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me today. It's been a real pleasure uh, meeting you, talking to you, uh, just hearing your story. Uh, I hope your wrist heals. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, stick to surfing. And before I let you go, I just have to find out, you know, you've, you've bounced around a bit. You're in the wine business uh, up in Napa. You've been in Bordeaux. How'd you pick up surfing? Uh, that's a wine-related story. So the, the first day I worked at Trollamando, uh, the owner of, uh, of Trollamando, Christine Vallette, took me down to Cheval Blanc to meet uh, Pierre Lurton, who is, uh, was the manager of Cheval Blanc. He's now yeah. the manager of both Cheval Blanc and Chateau Yquem. 
And uh, he, uh, first thing he did when he heard that I was from California, he said, do you surf? And uh, I, I had tried it once, uh, but wasn't really serious about it. And I said, no. And he said, oh, that's too bad because we could have surfed together. And I, that, uh, that made me have this dream moment where I was thinking of Pierre Leton and I surfing and drinking 47 Cheval Blanc on the beach together. <laughs> I need to learn how to surf. So I, the next week I called up uh, a, surf, uh, a surf shop in La Cano, which is the famous surfing area uh, around Bordeaux and signed up for lessons. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. So. So, Aaron, I have to ask, did the uh, the fantasy come true? Were you paddling out, you know, with Luton and uh, then, you know, catching waves and drinking the uh, – personally, I would have had the 45. That's just me. <laughs> yeah, I wish. You know, it never came true. But uh, I don't even know if Pierre has ever uh, heard my story about this, but it's really – he had a huge influence on me, and I don't think he even knows. He's a lovely guy, Pierre Luton. He's a wonderful person. Well, I don't know how to top that. So on that note, I, I will thank you again for spending time with me. And it's just an absolute pleasure to virtually meet you. And I hope one day to have the pleasure of doing it in person. I hope so, too. Perhaps we can take a few runs in Park City, Scott. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. Okay. Uh, you are welcome anytime. All right. Fantastic. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week show every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. And until the next time, remember, do good, drink well. 